today we are starting a sermon series on prayer. And I was wondering if, before we began, you would be willing to take a moment and pray for me. Um, one of the things that I've been learning and that we're going to be talking about today is just how, how desperately I need, how desperately I think actually all of us need prayer. So would you be willing to pray for me today? I'm getting, okay, I'm getting some nods, that's good. <laughs> and when we pray, I think it could be helpful uh, if we're specific in what we bring before the Lord. So I'm going to give you one specific thing that you can be praying for, for me this morning as I preach, and then if you feel the Spirit prompting you to pray for me in any other way, please feel free. I will take all of your prayers gladly. Um, so here's my prayer request. And like church is a place that we can be vulnerable, right? This is a place where we come and we can, be, we can be vulnerable. So I'll be a little bit vulnerable with you. You know, I've been preparing for this sermon and thinking about, I've gotten to preach here before, but my first sermon as the pastor of the church, thinking about this series and all of these things, I have had this, this deep desire. You know, actually, I will call it a temptation. I've had a deep temptation to impress you today. Right? To make sure that I make a really good first impression and I want it to look smart and I want to look skilled and not to my glory, right? Or sorry, yes to my glory. That's what I want. To my glory, not to God's glory. That's the temptation today. So I confess that to you as my church and I'm, and I'm asking you to pray for me. Would you pray for me this morning that I'd be delivered from the temptation to be impressive and that instead of trying to be impressive... That instead of trying to preach out of my own strength, that I would be able to offer to you today my weakness and my ordinariness. And that I could offer it to you in such a way that if we experience something special, if we happen to hear God's still small voice speak into our heart of hearts today, that we would know that is entirely based upon his grace and mercy and that it has nothing to do with anything special in me. Amen? Okay. Can you pray for me for that today? I'm actually, like, I'm going to give us an uncomfortable moment of sitting silently while you pray for me, and then I will pray for you, and then we'll start the sermon, okay? Yeah? Okay. Well, please. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you so much, so come and be present with us today. Lord, come and, and, and meet us here in this place. Lord, come and speak to our hearts. Soften our hearts to your word. Help us to listen closely to that still, small voice with which you speak. Lord, fill us with your grace. And God, I pray that today we would leave encouraged, encouraged by you and your presence, that we would leave filled up knowing the experience of your rest. God, and I pray that you would just turn our hearts to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. So this morning we're beginning a sermon series on prayer. And I don't know if you know what this is. This is Mosaic, if you've seen this. This is a, a denominational publication. Uh, they were online for a while. They've gone back to a print 
mag I think it's once a year, they put out a print magazine. You can get a copy in the, in, do we call it the lobby, the foyer? What do we call it? I don't know. When you enter in, there's a table there. There's some of these down there. We have more of them in boxes, so don't be afraid to take them. Take them home. There's lots of great stuff in here. There's an article with Bob in it, which I read this week, which is excellent, talking about being chaplain, a military chaplain, and what that means and what that's looked like for him. And there's also an article um, from the National Prayer Team about learning to pray. And I, there was this really great quote in it, a gentleman named Ken, and he said, we give lip service to prayer. We intellectually believe in prayer, but it's in the doing of it that we fall short. And they're talking about this prayer initiative that's happening at a denominational level, but that resonates with me. I think for much of my life, like intellectually, it was like, yep, prayer, good idea, something I do as a Christian. But in the doing of it, I was falling short. So as we're, we're beginning this sermon series on prayer, we're, I'm actually planning, we're going to spend the whole summer talking about prayer, looking at famous prayers throughout the scripture, learning from them, and practicing prayer together. And I know that that seems like a lot of prayer, uh, and you're right, it is a lot of prayer, <laughs> um, but here's what I believe. If we could only do one thing as a church, like if we had to just pick, you know, some, some cosmic, crazy cosmic rule comes into play, and we have to pick something I would pick prayer. In my own spiritual journey, there has been nothing more formative or transformative than prayer. Prayer, talking to God and listening to God, is a transformative act. And also, you know, it's kind of a cheap answer that I get to give to that, you know, what would we do? Because I think, actually, if we stop and think about it, almost everything that we do together as a church is so, so Ruth Haley Barton puts it this way in her book, Sacred Rhythms. She says, It has become increasingly difficult for me to distinguish prayer as a spiritual discipline from all of the others. The longer that I journey in the spiritual life, the more I experience all of life as prayer and all of the other disciplines as different ways of praying. So she breaks it down a little bit. She says, Solitude and silence, the spiritual discipline, solitude and silence, help me experience the more contemplative elements of prayer. Lectio Divina is a way of praying through the scriptures. Self-examination is the prayer in which I invite God to search me and to reveal those things that I need to know about myself. Discernment is the listening sort of prayer, sitting with a question or a decision in the presence of God and waiting for the wisdom of God that is given as a pure gift. We can go on and on, right? Like worship, adoration, lament, grieving. Prayer is so much bigger than I think we give it credit for. So we're going to spend a lot of time praying, learning about prayer, thinking about prayer, but there is a lot of ground for us to cover. So because we're going to be covering all of this ground and learning all of this information, right, we intellectually believe about prayer, to go back to that Mosaic article, we're going to learn all kinds of intellectual information. I thought it was really important that as we started out this series, we focused on the very most important part of prayer, which is our hearts. See, as we learn new and different types of prayers and look at the prayers that we find in Scripture, there can be a temptation, a temptation to start trying to boil it down into a formula, right? To, to turn prayer away from relationship and into some sort of transaction. And one of the things that I hope that we can really hold to together as we journey through the series is that, is that the practices that we talk about, the different ways of praying together, are not some sort of like works righteousness, right? And while they, they may have structures of some sort, and they're certainly, what they are not 
is a contract or a mechanism that if we put in X amount of effort and focus and energy, then out comes spiritual growth or healing or sings or provision or whatever it is that we were hoping and praying for. And it's so, always so surprising to me how easy it is to slip into this way of thinking when we start talking about forms and practices. If I just do it this way, then X, Y, Z will come, right? These actions we're going to be talking about, and, and they are actions, like we are doing things. It's important for us to remember that they earn us nothing <laughs> in the economy of God. It's not about earning we're, we're not owed anything for having done them. I really love the way Richard, Roster, uh, Richard, Richard Foster puts it in, in his writing on prayer. He says, It's critical for us to understand that the spiritual disciplines possess no moral rectitude or righteousness in and of themselves. What they do is they place us. They place us body, mind, and spirit before God. That's all. The results of this process are all of God, all of grace. I'm hopeful that our passage today out of Luke will help us to see even more clearly that prayer and the fruit that it bears is not a product of our striving or of our gritted teeth, but of God's grace. And that because of that, the most important piece of the puzzle is not the format or the mechanics of our prayer, but our heart. So I'm going to reread the parable, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll dive right in. So this is out of Luke chapter 18, we're starting at verse 9. If you have your Bibles, I'll give you a second to, to turn to it. We're going to read through it once more. Um, this is a Luke 18, chapter, or Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9. Uh, I'm reading out of the NIV translation. And it says, So to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the, to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, I understand that it might be strange to us as modern readers of this text, um, but it seems fairly clear that the final verse of that parable, right, that for all those, uh, sorry, that I tell you that this man rather than the other, that the tax collector rather than the Pharisee went home justified before God. That verse would have been like mind-blowing surprise to the people who were listening to this parable as it was being taught. There are a number of reasons that this would seem so surprising. We're going to go through it together uh, and why it would have been surprising specifically to the people who were, who were listening to this parable, the people to whom Jesus was speaking that day. The first reason, the most likely obvious one to us, is the backstory of each character, right? So the Pharisee, of course, the first one to stand up and pray, he was a religious leader, and they were known for their piety. Culturally, people would have instinctively thought of him as an admirable person, someone to look up to. Contrastingly, the tax collector, tax collectors in general, were kind of thought of as like the scum of the earth, 
<laughs> they were universally disliked by the Jews, and, and they were thought of as both thieves, because of how they would inflate people's taxes to pad their own pockets, but they would also choose to work with the Roman Empire, who were oppressing the Jewish people. So, so tax collectors were thought of as traitors to their own people as well. So they're, they're thieves and they are traitors. So of course, to Jesus' listeners, who were likely Pharisees, they would not have been pleased to hear that the unrighteous tax collector was justified before God when, like, their person was not. But there's actually more to why the listeners of this parable would likely have been confused and surprised when Jesus got to that punchline at the end. See, I always have a tendency to look at the way that the Pharisee prayed, standing up, right? I always looked at that as a sign of, of pride and maybe of a lack of reverence for God. Um, but this is a really modern perspective. If we look at other passages, it becomes really clear that this kind of praying was very normal. Actually, when Jesus is teaching on prayer in Mark 11, he assumes that that is the posture for praying. He says, when you stand and pray. And there's no condemnation of that, um, which is good news for me because I stood and prayed earlier. So we're glad we're in the, in the clear on that one. <laughs> we, of course, also look at the content of the prayer, right? So the, the, the posture, the backstories, and the content of the prayer and we decide, uh, we look at the Pharisees' prayer, and we decide that it's very obviously not the type of prayer that we should be praying, right? Well, this is also probably would not have been as obvious to Jesus' listeners. So the prayer of the Pharisee follows this basic form. Thank you that I'm not like those others. Here are the ways that I honor you, right? Thank you that I'm not like these other people, like liars, adulterers, even this tax collector. Look at, here are the things that I do to honor you. I fast twice a week. I, I give a tenth of all that I get. That form of prayer, actually the prayer itself, very, very similar to another prayer that you can find in the Talmud, in the Jewish book of like ceremonial book of law and ritual and history. It's not unlikely that people were coming to the temple and praying prayers like that all the time. And the truth is, I think that if we can look past some of the pers different perspectives that we hold from being from a different time, and we can actually, actually seek after what sits at the heart of the Pharisee's prayer, I might feel like a little more familiar. It might be a little more familiar to me than I am exactly comfortable with. The Pharisee is leaning on the law, right? Fasting twice a week to make sure he was going above and beyond what the law required giving a tenth of everything he gets, which is above and beyond of the law because you only had to give a tenth of what you earned, right? So he's saying, I'm giving more than, I'm fasting more than I need to. I'm giving more than I need to. He's going above and beyond what the law requires. Here's what the Pharisee was doing. He was leaning on his own righteousness. And what he was trying to do is he's making like a little step stool, right? He's like, I'm going to get this much closer to God when I pray based upon my righteousness. I'm just going to, we're going to step up a little bit more. And it's kind of like his own little mini Tower of Babel, if we think about it, right? He's building this tower of works and righteousness to try to make his way up to God. And I think that we often do likewise. It's probably not as overt, but I know that especially when faced with, with deep disappointment, with unanswered prayer, in, in the midst of like great suffering and a hard time, 
and I'm, and I'm praying, and I just don't feel like I'm hearing from God, and I don't know what's going on, I start to have the message come into the back of my head. It's, it's kind of like, well, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Right? Has anyone ever, ever felt that way? Have you thought that? Maybe, you know, for me, I'll go, well, maybe, maybe I didn't have enough faith. So then I'll pray, and I'll ask God for faith, and then I'll go back, and I'll pray again with the new faith God's given me, right? <laughs> or maybe I'll decide that what I really need to do is fast and pray. And that's like, that's like putting rocket fuel on my prayer. Go straight up to God that way, right? <laughs> and then, then if I do that, if I take that action, then maybe my prayers will be answered. And then maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try to harness the format of the Lord's Prayer. And I'll try to, you know, then if I do it right, then my petitions will be heard. Or we'll pray the, the prayer of Jabez. And then God has to give me what I'm asking. And we just keep searching, right? Searching and searching for the magic words that I can say to make God bring me healing or freedom or hope. And it's all based upon my strength. And it's all based upon my getting it right. And it starts to quickly feel very blurry, right? Because fasting twice a week and giving a tenth of all you get are not bad things. In fact, these are good and beautiful things. Spiritual practices that have the potential to bring about great fruit in our hearts and in our lives. But what's clear to me is that if we are operating out of this pharisaical heart, if we're treating our relationship God, with God like a, like a puzzle to be solved, like a set of rules to be mastered, then it's transactional. It's not relational then God becomes someone that if I can just get it right, I can manipulate and control rather than someone that I love and who loves me. And in this puzzle way of thinking about it, we might be coming at prayer with our mind, with our intellect, but I think our hearts are very far from where they need to be. And I think that this is precisely what prayer that's born out of a confidence in our own ability, which is the people to whom the parable was spoken, right? To those who are confident in their own ability. This is exactly what prayer, born out of that confidence in our own ability, out of our pride, looks like. And friends, it's exhausting. Like, if this is how we are called to pray, it is no wonder to me that so many of us feel burned out and burdened by this type of prayer. This type of prayer that, Nowen describes it. I think it's so good. He says, it's prayer where our minds are filled with the ideas of God, but our hearts remain far from him. Luckily, I think that there's an answer to this kind of prayer, a response to this kind of prayer, this exhausting mechanical prayer that we see in the tax collector. But before we go there, I want to just circle back for a moment. Because I, I want to be resolutely clear that the practices of the Pharisee, the practices of you and me as we are earnestly seeking after God in prayer, are not in any way bad things. We're going to spend our whole summer learning different practices to help us, help us open our hearts to God in prayer. Practices can be good and beautiful and very helpful. But what is most important in our prayer is the position of our hearts. And I think that that's the message we learn about prayer from this parable. It's the same message that we read in the Sermon on the Mount. God wants more from us than just good actions or, or legalistic adherence to law. What he wants is our whole hearts. So what about the tax collector? 
What would Jesus' listeners have thought of the tax collector's prayer? Well, he's beating his chest. He's also standing, actually. <laughs> he's standing, but he's beating his chest. He's leaning over. He's, he refuses to look up to the heavens. And he cries out for mercy. The crying out for mercy wouldn't have been thought of poorly by Jesus' listeners, right? There's some pretty profound humility in the words of the tax collector. In English, we read this prayer as, Have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But in the Greek, it's actually even more than that. He goes a step further. It actually is, it would read, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner. Not just ace. I am the sinner. Where the Pharisee puts himself into a category, he categorizes himself, I'm not like those other people. The tax collector says, I am the person. I am that sinner. I am the one, right? And, and Jesus' listeners probably would have thought, at this part of the parable, they've been listening along, and they would have thought, yeah, that's what he should be praying. And the surprise wouldn't have come until verse 14, when the ta- Jesus says that the tax collector is justified. The listeners at that point, when it's and this man rather than the other is taxified, uh, is, is, um, taxified, is justified before God, um, they would have actually, it's not just outrage, how dare they, you know, they would have actually disagreed theologically with Jesus on this point. Because in their minds, the tax collector cannot be justified yet. He could be justified, but he cannot yet because he has not shown works of repentance. In order to be justified, the ta- according to the Jewish people, in order to be justified, the tax collector would have had to pay back what he stole. And then he could be justified. Not before he's done the work. But this is the central idea of the parable. The really, truly radical part of it. That when we come in prayer, what matters most is not having fancy words or saying the right things in the right order or asking the most proper way. The Pharisee had all of that going for him and then son. It wasn't enough. What matters most in our prayers actually isn't us at all. It's Jesus. I love the way this, there's a, this new Norwegian pietist writer named Ole Halsby. And he has a book called Prayer. Really creative name. Um, I love the way that he talks about prayer, though. He writes, he writes that the verse in Scripture that he thinks best describes the nature of prayer to him is Revelation 3.20. Where it says, this is Jesus, in Revelation he's speaking and he says, Behold, or here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. See, Halsby describes prayer as the coming together of our helplessness and our faith. That's prayer. We simply open the door. Jesus comes in and dwells with us. We don't have to build up towers of righteousness to make our way to him. That's a fool's game. It's just going to burn you out. It's not by our works, but by his grace that we pray. It's not because I can somehow conform myself to, to be good enough, wise enough, loving enough. Instead, we bring our inability and our trust in the grace of Jesus to come and fill us. So, does that mean that I'm off the hook and I don't ever need to work at anything ever again? No, of course not. 
<laughs> Again, Foster, I really like how he says this. He says, faith and works are opposite, but faith and effort are not. The pronounced, there, is a, there is a pronounced difference there, though, right? Every single relationship you have in your life takes work. But if your relationship feels like your job, you might be in trouble. <laughs> Prayer requires effort, time, commitment, focus, and a whole lot of humility and grace. But when our prayer flows out of our weakness, when it's born out of the new heart that Jesus has given to us, that work can feel like rejuvenation rather than something that beats us down and tells us we aren't enough. So I'll give you an example from my own life. Uh, I was a track and field athlete, but I did jumping because I did not like to run, <laughs> right? And whenever I got into that mindset of like, you know what, I'm going to become a runner. That's what I would like to do. I would go out and I would try to run and I would run really, really hard to the point where I felt like I was going to be sick and I would try to, you know, commit to this and I'm going to get fast enough and I'm going to be good enough and I would try and push and run and run and run and eventually quit because it stunk. It was the worst. I did not enjoy that one bit. Then during the pandemic, uh, I decided that I was going to try to run, uh, but radical new idea for me, what if I ran slow? What if instead of running so hard that I felt sick, I just ran at a pace that felt good and healthy to me? And wouldn't you know it, I loved running. It was this amazing, beautiful experience. It was a time to clear my head. It felt like, like rest. And yeah, sometimes you go out and it's hot and you're sweaty and it's like, ugh, maybe not, right? But there was, a, there was a transformation that happened when I stopped fighting, stopped gritting my teeth, stopped trying to push myself farther than I should have been going because I thought I should, should, should be this fast or this good or this anything. When I just went and listened, it was transformative, right? And I think that prayer can be like this too, when we, when we go to it and we're like, okay, I have to do it, all of these things, and I must pray for this amount of time every day or else I'm a bad Christian. When we, when we live in that box of shame of should, of this is what I must do and I need to do it in this way, or maybe I'm using the wrong words and I, you know, whatever it might be, of course we're exhausted. Of course we're burnt out. Of course we're bent out of shape. But what would it look like if prayer could be rest? What would it look like if prayer could be receiving from God rather than trying to put something. What would it look like if prayer was incarnational, right? If prayer reflected the truth that we know about our God, who is a God in the form of Jesus, came down to be with us, who didn't ask us to build a Tower of Babel up to him, but comes and meets with us here and now. What if our prayer was that way? And I'll tell you that in my own life, that switch in the way of thinking was a lot like that switch in the running. It, was, it, it became something that, I, that, that, that changed for me, that, that, that was enjoyable, that, was, that became rest and grace rather than work and effort. And so if you're, if you're, if you're thinking, okay, maybe I'm going to try this, maybe I should think about prayer differently, the question that might come into your mind is, well, how do I know if I'm doing it right? right? We still want to, we still want to know, we still, like, that's a good question, right? I want to be faithful. That's what I hear you saying. I want to be faithful. How do I make sure I'm being faithful if I'm not trying to stick to a certain set of rules? And I can't give you a perfect answer, but the thing that I can tell you is that, that if, if we are praying well, 
we will be lovingly drawn to our neighbors. I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I was going through this real journey with prayer, and God was really meeting me in the midst of this. And, uh, and I was, I had, it was during Lent, and I was fasting from, uh, fasting from work, which is kind of strange, but I, like, I had realized that I had a tendency to want to do, 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 and prove my value. And so I said, every day I'm going to sit silently and just listen to God for X amount of time, and I'm, I'm not going to try to bring him something or do something for him. I'm just going to sit and be present. And God showed up in some really beautiful ways. And there was one day I was, I was in our spare bedroom at the place where Raven and I lived, and I, and I was just sitting and I was praying, and I felt so much the presence of God in a way that I never had before. And he was so near to me, and I started weeping. And I, and I, and I like, it was overwhelming, and I got up, and I like went out of the spare room, and I walked, I walked into like the kitchen, and Raven was over there in the kitchen, and and uh, and I walked over to her, and I'm just crying, and she's like, "What's wrong? Did somebody die? Like, are you okay?" I said, "I just love you so much," <laughs> because experiencing the overwhelming love of God will always overflow to the people around you. So if if you are if we're doing this thing right. We will be more loving. Another example of this, a great example of this is Zacchaeus, right? So Zacchaeus has this encounter with Jesus and his whole life is flipped upside down. And it's so funny, right? Because we're, we're, we're gritting our teeth and we're trying and we're going to do it the best we can and we're going to follow all of the rules, right? And, and, then, and then we're like, okay, I'm going to put that aside and I'm just going to receive and he takes us further, right? He takes us, even in my journey, like after that experience, like God took me, down some really hard roads, some really difficult, some of the most challenging things in my faith, was Zacchaeus. He encounters Jesus, and it wasn't his striving, it wasn't his greatness, it's his weakness that comes. He's seen and known in that, he's loved, and what does he do? He turns around, and instead of paying back three times, he pays back seven times. Actually, he's able to go further than he would have done if he'd just stuck in the law. See, Jesus, again, back to the Sermon on the Mount, right? He doesn't just desire adherence to the law, but if we rest in him, I think he'll actually bring us even further. So this is the invitation, right? It's the invitation to, to maybe think a little bit differently about prayer, to maybe imagine it's not about my effort and my works and my striving, but it's actually a gift that we receive from our Lord. And I'm wondering, because I know that this whole series, it's going to be important, it's important to me, right, that, that, we, that we don't just talk intellectually about these things, but we actually lean into a practice. In this passage out of Luke 18, it's, 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 it's meant more to people through the church, than through the history of the church, than just this parable. It's actually the foundation of something called the Jesus Prayer, which, which we read the prayer in the, the prayer of the Pharisee. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then throughout church history, people have begun to pray this. It's called a hecastic prayer, a breath prayer. They say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's a really simple way to pray. I think when I was growing up in the church, we, we were like really adverse to praying, you know, these liturgical kinds of prayers, right? Because we we're like, no, we pray with our own words. But I don't know about you, but I've gone through periods and times in my life when I've gone to pray and the words are not there, where I don't know what to say. And in those moments now, I'm really grateful to have practices like the Jesus Prayer that I can lean on, that I don't have to 
think about or do, I can just enter in. And so this is, the, this is the, the premise of a breath prayer. This is the prayer practice for our week. It's something I'd encourage you to maybe think about or try as your week goes along. A breath prayer is we breathe in on half of the prayer and we breathe out on half of the prayer. And we, and we get into a rhythm of just praying these words, of just basking in the presence of God. And so, so this prayer, the Jesus prayer, it's Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, as we breathe in. And then as we breathe out, we say, have mercy on me a sinner. And I'm going to invite you today, as we close out this time, to practice that together. To, 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 to just, just for a few moments, to sit and try this prayer. And then I'm going to challenge you this week, in the moment when you're standing in line, perhaps at the bank, and you know, can, I don't, my generation, we always, everybody goes, so you're standing, you're waiting. If you have 30 seconds to wait, we all pull out our phone and scroll through the news or social media or something. Instead of that, maybe once this week, if you could remember, hmm, maybe I could try breathing. Maybe I could remember that I'm breathing, and as I breathe, I could pray this prayer. And just see. See what happens if we replace the dissociative behavior with something present, yeah? Okay, so I'm going to invite us into that practice, and then there's going to be one more worship song, um, and then then I'll come up and close this out. Uh, So I'm going to lead in a couple, breathing in and breathing out, and then I'll, I'll leave you to continue in that rhythm for a little bit, and then we'll worship. We'll stand when the song comes on. Amen? Okay. So as we breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, as we breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.